0: Welcome back to the Listener's Commentary on Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians. In this session, we're going to look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, the whole chapter, because it's a fairly short chapter, and 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 includes two parts. The first is the greetings, the intro and greetings, the salutation, and that really only takes up one verse. And then in verses 2 through 10 of the chapter, Paul has an extended thanksgiving for the, Thessalonians. the Introduction, the greetings, reads like this. Paul, Sylvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. And the first thing we need to say about that is this simply follows the standard introduction and greeting for letters of the day. This is not like a specially biblical way to write a letter or anything like that. This is the way little boys and little girls would have learned how to write letters in school when they were small. This is the way everybody wrote letters. The letter began with this kind of salutation. And the typical salutation included three parts. And you see those three parts here in First Thessalonians chapter 1. And those three parts are the sender, the recipient's, and then the word of greeting. So sender, recipients, greetings. And here in 1 Thessalonians 1:1, we have the senders, Paul, Sylvanus, and Timothy. Those are the senders. We have the recipients, the Church of the Thessalonians, and then we have the greeting, grace and peace. So the senders of this letter are Paul, Sylvanus, and Timothy. And the reason Paul includes Sylvanus and Timothy in the cinders is because, uh, from what we can tell, as we noted in the introduction, they were quite involved in Paul's ministry there in Thessalonica. Sylvanus so is just another name for a full name for Silas. And so Timothy and Silas were involved with Paul during his whole Macedonian ministry, and thus they're included here in the cinders. The recipient here is described as The Church of the Thessalonians, that's the first bit, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Just a couple notes about that. The word church, while to our ears, after all the theological water under the bridge, the word church is an exclusively religious word for us, uh, it wasn't for them. The word for church is ekklesia, um, and it simply means assembly or congregation. In the Greek version of the Old Testament, the word ecclesia was the, one of the standard words for the congregation of Israel, the assembly of the people of Israel. It's just the gathering of the people. What's probably more significant for here in 1 Thessalonians is that, as we noted in the introduction, Thessalonians, uh, Thessalonica had been given the privilege of being a free city because of their... Loyalty to Octavian and Mark Antony in the Roman Civil War. And part of the benefit of being uh, labeled a free city was they got to be ruled by a citizen's assembly, as well as then the polytarchs, the city rulers. And so the citizen's assembly was actually designated by this very same word, the ecclesia of the Thessalonians would have been the assembly, the citizens' assembly, the ruling body of the city. Now here we have to the ecclesia of the Thessalonians, but it's not the ruling body of the city. It's not the ecclesia that is the the political ecclesia of the city. It is the ecclesia of the Thessalonians in God the Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. And those following phrases are added specifically to identify which ecclesia of the Thessalonians we're talking about. There would have been, obviously, the citizens' assembly that was the ruling body of the city. There were other little smaller gatherings, assemblies that would have been designated as ecclesias. We're talking about a very specific ecclesia of the Thessalonians, the one that is uh, in God the Father and in. Uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, another thing that's really significant about that is when you say the Lord Jesus Christ, Christ means Messiah, it means one anointed as king um, from the Hebrew, and Lord is a designation for the emperor, and so in designating this particular ecclesia as in the Lord Jesus Christ, there is a little bit of political kind of subversion just embodied in the very description of the church of the Thessalonians here. So the senders, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. The recipients, a very specific ecclesia, a very specific gathering or assembly of people in the city, those that are in Christ and in God. And then the greetings here is grace to you and peace. And what Paul seems to be doing here is adopting and adapting the standard Greek greeting and the standard Jewish greeting. The standard Greek greeting at this point in the letter would have been chirine, greetings. Well, Paul uses the word charis, grace. Do you hear the similarity? Chirine charis. They actually derive from the same root, or at least are part of the same word, family. And so Paul adopts the standard Greek greeting, "Chirine," and replaces it with uh, "Chorus." grace, grace to you. And the reason for that is because grace is really undergirding everything that the church is and the church has because of the goodness and the grace of God. So grace to you. The standard Jewish greeting of the day, the way Jews on the street would greet each other would be shalom, which is peace. And so peace, grace to you, and peace from God our Father. And so um, grace and peace to you. Now, the rest of chapter one is an extended thanksgiving for the Thessalonians as a way of, in a lot of ways, uh, reaffirming Paul's affection for them and reaffirming the Thessalonians' in their conversion, and their faith. And so we get this extended thanksgiving in verses 2 through 10. And typically, in most Greek letters or Greco-Roman letters of Paul's day, typically at this point, there would be some sort of prayer wish for the recipient. May the gods grant you health and safety in all your endeavors, or something like that. Um, And Paul oftentimes has some sort of prayer there, makes mention of how he's praying for them, and, and kind of records how he's praying for them. And very often, that includes his thanksgiving, and that's certainly what we have here in the Thessalonian letter. And so, Paul writes this beginning in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 2. He says, We always give thanks to God for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers. And so, Paul affirms at this point how whenever he is praying, he makes mention of them and he does so to God with thanksgiving. This is not just an occasional thing. Paul lets them know this is a regular thing. We're always doing this. When we are before God in prayer, we are always making mention of you with thanksgiving. We are thanking God for you. And specifically, what about them is Paul thanking God for? Well, he goes on in verse 3 to begin to describe what it is that he's thanking God for. He says, constantly keeping in mind. So here's what he's holding in his mind about them that's leading him to uh, thank God for them. He's constantly keeping in mind your work of faith and labor of love and perseverance of hope. In the presence of our God and Father. And notice these three things: the work of faith, and that is the idea that faith leads to action, right? We see this all throughout the New Testament. Obviously, in the book of James, you have a, a whole paragraph about this, that faith without works is dead. And so, Paul, as he thinks about the Thessalonians, one of the things that keeps coming to mind is how their their incipient, though young, faith in Jesus led to action on Behalf of Jesus, their work that sprang forth from their faith in Jesus. He also keeps in mind their labor of love. Um, And that word labor actually is a word that speaks of toil like difficulty, like, man, you're you're really pouring yourself out there. And the Thessalonians are doing this because of their love, their love for God and their love for other people. And so they're laboring and toiling on behalf of others because of their love. They're really laying down their lives for the sake of other people because of their love for God and their love for Jesus. And then he keeps in mind their perseverance of hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so they have hope in Jesus. And in the New Testament, we need to make sure we understand that the word hope doesn't just mean wish. It's not a shaky sort of thing. The word hope really is the idea of anticipation. It's a confident expectation of something that you anticipate happening in the future that's hope so it's not just oh gee i sure hope that happens as you know a teenager might say as they're approaching their 16th birthday or something oh man i sure hope my parents you know get me a car for my birthday And there's really no certainty about it. It's highly unlikely it's going to happen, right? That's not what we're talking about. We talk about biblical hope. We're talking about a confident expectation of something we know and anticipate is going to happen in the future. Well, because the Thessalonians have this kind of hope in Jesus, it has led them to endure, to persevere, your perseverance that springs forth from your hope. And so hope drives them to endurance. And one of the things that would be helpful for us to notice here is that all three of these nouns, right, like work, labor, perseverance, none of those suggest like an easy walk in the park, right? They suggest effort. They suggest uh, even some difficulty and some struggle. And we need to remember that, that Christianity isn't an effortless way of life. Like God's grace and what he has done for us in Jesus isn't effortless. In fact, Dallas Willard is famous for saying grace is opposed to earning. It's not opposed to effort. In fact, grace enables and empowers the effort for us to work and to labor and to persevere. And hence, it's really um, work, labor, and perseverance that springs forth, as you see here, from faith love, and hope. And those three motivations, those three what are often called theological virtues, faith, love, and hope, uh, are regularly joined together in the New Testament as like the pillars of Christian living. In fact, uh, these three are used in 12 different New Testament passages as a combination that really undergird all of our Christian living. Faith, love, hope, faith, Hope, love, they show up all throughout the New Testament as the pillars of our Christian living. Everything is supported by them, and it's those three pillars that are shaping the Thessalonians' lives, their work, their labor, and their perseverance in the Lord Jesus. Now, Paul goes on in verse 4 then to say that, uh, as he's thanking God for them, and he's bearing in mind these traits and these facts about the Thessalonians and the way they have lived, he says this. He says, "Knowing brothers," and when he says brothers, that's in the Greek language. If you have a mixed group of men and women, you always use the the masculine, right? And so this is not. Uh, this is just the way the language works. So this is knowing brothers and sisters, men and women. Knowing, um, b- um, brothers, beloved by God, His choice of you. And so, as Paul looks at the Thessalonians, he sees the way um, their young and new faith in Jesus has led to a change of life. It's it's convinced him that they are chosen by God. And so, knowing brothers and sisters, beloved by God, His choice of you. That little phrase in the middle of that verse there, beloved by God. Oh, that's so important. And it's easy for us just to overlook little phrases like that, right? But what he's speaking of is really their identity. You guys are beloved by God, by God himself. And and that really grounds them. And as we take that same sort of description into ourselves, it grounds us. It gives us an identity, particularly when you're, in the case of the Thessalonians, you're Your group is small in a big city, right? You don't have any clout, any status, any credibility. Not only that, you're experiencing opposition and hardship and harassment, and yet you're beloved by God, and it really gives you a sense of identity and belonging for who you really are, and that's why Paul, I think, includes it here. And so, I I know who you are. I can see it in the way you live. You are beloved by God, and I know he says, His choice of you, or perhaps better just translated, the word his is just supplied. It's not in the Greek. It's probably better just said, knowing um, your election. And that word choice literally just is that it's election or selection. And so I know that you, of your election. How does he know that? How does he know they're part of? The elect, meaning part of God's people. That's the idea. Beloved by God and election, particularly when combined together like this. The basic idea is you're part of God's people, right? Like you belong to him. These are belonging terms, which again, really strengthens and establishes uh, the church's identity as God's people there in Thessalonica. So I know this. I know of your election. How? Well, he goes on to give the reason. Verse 5, because... Our gospel didn't come to you in word only, it didn't come just in word, it didn't just come in preaching, but our gospel came to you in power, probably referring to miracles, And in the Holy Spirit, in some sense, the Spirit empowered those miracles. The Spirit showed up in the change in the lives of the Thessalonians. So uh, our gospel, our preaching of the good news about Jesus, that's the idea of gospel. Gospel isn't a plan of salvation as we've made it. Gospel is a story, a news story, and the story here is the story of what God has done in Jesus, the rescue operation that God has achieved in and through Jesus. So our gospel came to you in power, with miracles, in the evident work of the Holy Spirit in your changed life, and with full conviction, which we tend to hear the word conviction, and we think, you know, preaching that's just full of emotion and conviction, right? And I'm sure that's part of it, right? Full conviction in the proclamation of the gospel. Paul's fully assured of that. Uh, But beyond just the preaching, what Paul attaches to the full conviction is, the way they lived their life. He says, And with full conviction, just as you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sakes. That our very manner of life and the way we lived among you demonstrated our our persuasion and our confidence that the gospel was true. And so it's not just in the preaching of the gospel that he preached it with full conviction. It's in the manner of his living, even in, as he'll go on to say, the manner of his dealing with affliction and the Thessalonians following suit in that. Even the way he he dealt with opposition demonstrated that he's fully persuaded that the gospel is true. So Paul is thanking God for the Thessalonians as he looks at the change in their life, even in the midst of difficulty that has sprung forth from their newfound faith in Jesus as Messiah and Lord. It has has brought real change to their life. And that convinces Paul that they really are part of God's chosen people. They're part of the elect. They're part of God's very own people. Paul goes on then in verses 6 through 10 to really, in a lot of ways, even though it's still part of the thanksgiving, to offer this affirmation of the Thessalonians, affirming them and reminding them of who they are and the the effects that the gospel has had among them. And it's just part of his thanksgiving because it's a continued description of how he knows that they're part of God's elect. And so he says, you also... Became imitators of us and of the Lord. In other words, you, O Thessalonians, you followed the pattern of us and of the Lord, meaning Jesus, having received the word during great affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. And so when they welcomed the gospel, when they welcomed the preaching about Jesus, they did so even in the midst of great affliction, great harassment, great difficulty. And with joy in the Holy Spirit. And so it's like, yeah, it's evident to Paul that um, the work of the gospel is real in their life, and their response to the gospel evidences that they really are part of God's chosen people because Paul could see it in the way they live their lives. And specifically, here in verse six, he's saying, You, you follow the pattern of Jesus who endured great hostility with joy, you follow the pattern of Paul and his missionary team who right there in Thessalonica experienced uh, great difficulty and still had joy. And you followed that same pattern. And this is evidence of the work of the gospel in your life. And In fact, he says this was so evident and so powerful, he says in verse 7, that you actually became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. Macedonia is the political region in which Thessalonica is and is the capital, as we noted. Achaia is southern Greece. It's the part where Athens and Corinth is at, where Paul is writing from. Paul's in Achaia, in Corinth, writing from And So Paul says, like, Your, you became imitators of us, and then you became an example to all the other believers with the way you responded to the gospel and, and welcomed it in the midst of affliction with great joy. In fact, Paul says in verse 8, he says, For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but in every place. The news of your faith towards God has gone out, so that we don't have need to say anything. In other words, what Paul is saying is, um, wherever we go... What we hear is, oh yeah, we heard about the Thessalonians. We heard about how they responded to the gospel and welcomed them. Even though it was hard and it was difficult and there was harassment and opposition and it didn't start out easy, we heard about that. and So wherever Paul goes, the message... Uh, about the Thessalonians, their story and their testimony of faith in Jesus is ringing out throughout Macedonia and Achaia, and even in other places, people have already heard about the Thessalonians and their response to the gospel. In fact, Paul says in verses 9 and 10, they're actually telling us about your conversion. Verses 9 and 10, Paul says, for they... Um, those people in Macedonia and Achaia and in every place where the news of the Thessalonians faith has gone forth uh, for they themselves report about us as to the kind of reception we had with you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead that is Jesus who rescues us from the wrath to come in other words when we um, travel from place to place, all of a sudden the news about you, they're reporting they're reporting about it to us. They're, they're telling us, oh yeah, we heard how the Thessalonians welcomed you, right? So that's the first little bit. They themselves report about us as to the kind of reception we had with you, so that the Thessalonians welcomed Paul and Silas and Timothy amongst them. At least the believers did. We know that the unbelievers did not welcome Paul and Silas very well, but the believers did. And that's Paul's point is the fact that you welcomed us is testimony of the genuineness of your faith, the genuineness of the work of the gospel, and thus that you're part of God's chosen people. And so they're reporting that and they're reporting this. Notice how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God. That is about as succinct of a description of a person's conversion, particularly a conversion of someone living in Thessalonica or in any or any major Greco-Roman city in Paul's day. They turned to God from idols, because idols were everywhere. Um, in fact, in Thessalonica, as we noted in the introduction, you had uh, the standard gods of the Greek and Roman. Um, Pantheon, you had various mystery religions, Cabiris, Dionysus, you even had emperor worship, the uh, shrines and temples to the goddess Roma and to uh, the the emperor himself demonstrating your loyalty. And now all of a sudden you're turning from all of that to worship the living and true God and to wait for his son? Man, this is both um, a description of their conversion And it includes, because of the nature of the worldview of the day, some political kind of subversion. In Paul's world, um, the emperor worship, right, was you were worshiping the emperor. But historically, the living emperor was viewed as a son of God. And it's only been in recent times that, you know, now you actually worship the living emperor as a god. And so now what you have here is they're worshiping the true god. And his son, and all of that echoes in the pagan world of Paul's day's ears. As wait a second, I thought, I thought the, the emperor was the son of God. I thought he was God himself. And what about all the other gods? And this is a true and living God. And so Paul is actually subverting their their conversion. Demonstrates uh, really a subversion to the worldview of the day. Uh, idols were everywhere. Uh, if you wanted to make a business deal, you would go to the you know, appropriate shrine and offer some incense or, or a sacrifice, right? Uh, if you're, you were uh, arranging a marriage for your son or your daughter or whatever it was, there was a, a, a temple or a shrine for that, right? It was everywhere. I mean, so to turn from idols uh, I like the way N.T. Wright, his commentary on Thessalonians says, it, to turn from idols is basically like asking a modern person to quit using a car, a computer, and a cell phone. It's just like those things are just so hardwired into our world, we can't even conceive of that. And that's what it was like for the Thessalonians to turn from idols, to the, to the living God. Like idols were just part and part. It was like everything. It was like a car, a cell phone, and a computer. It's just part of your life. How do you operate without doing that, and going to that shrine and worshiping that, right? And yet that's what they did. They turned from those idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, to wait for the return of King Jesus from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. Notice that, that the The foundation of our hope in Jesus and his return is not just some vague wish. It is the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. Our resurrection is certain because Jesus' resurrection has already happened. And thus, we are waiting for the return of Jesus and for our resurrection and our transformation that goes with that because of the resurrection of Jesus um, who rescues us from the wrath to come. That uh, the, the, the great day of the return of Jesus is both a day of rescue and deliverance and blessing and a day of wrath for those who are outside of him. And so uh, he delivers us, he rescues us from the day of wrath to come. All right, so to summarize what Paul thanks God for when he thinks of the Thessalonians is he thanks God fundamentally for their genuine conversion— Evidenced in the way they welcomed Paul, the way they welcomed the gospel that now shows up in their lifestyle and their enduring difficulty for the sake of Jesus. And so Paul is confident that they're part of God's chosen people because of the way they responded to the gospel when it was first preached to them and the way they continue to live out the gospel right now in Thessalonica. And so Paul is incredibly grateful that he can see God's work in and among them as he thinks about the Thessalonians. And as we wrap up this section of 1 Thessalonians, just a couple reflections, a couple thoughts by way of implication. The first is the way Paul describes conversion here. They turned. They turned away from idols to serve the one true God. They turned in spite of the hardship it brought. Ordinary people like you and like me living in a major metropolis, the city of Thessalonica, they were going about their ordinary daily lives, they were going about their ordinary business, and all of a sudden they were pulled up short by an unexpected message. A message about King Jesus, God's own son, risen from the dead, who now could give them new life as well and deliver them from the wrath to come. And they turned. When they heard that message, they turned from the way they were living. They turned from the gods they were worshiping and living for. They turned to the one true God and to his son, Jesus and that, in a nutshell, is what conversion is all about. It's a turning. It's a turning away from a certain manner of life and a, a certain things that really are the foundation of our life, idols, whether they're physical idols in the case of the Thessalonians, or the things that modern society tends to glorify, depend on for safety, security, meaning, and value. And they turned away from all of that. And those who come into Christ today... The same is true. It's a turning, a turning away from a certain way of life and a turning to a new way of life with a new king and a new ruler. They turned. And so 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 really illustrates for us what conversion is all about and how conversion shows up in our manner of life. A second implication by way of reflection here on First Thessalonians chapter 1 is just the idea of thanksgiving and the kinds of things Paul is thankful for when he thinks about his ministry and when he thinks about people. He's thankful for their labor of love, their work of faith, their perseverance for the gospel, even amidst difficulty, right? He's thankful for the fact that it's evident because of the way they have responded to the gospel that they're part of God's chosen people. This is how Paul thinks, and this really helps us enter into. The values of his spirituality. What really matters to somebody who deeply knows God and deeply knows Jesus, like the Apostle Paul? Well, what matters is seeing people uh, not only turn to God, but live faithful lives for God, even in the midst of difficulty. And that's instructive to us about our life. What do we thank God for when we think about the people in our life? What do we want for our sons and our daughters, our extended family? Um, What do we thank God for about the people that we're involved in in life? These are the things that matter. These are the traits that really matter to Paul. And thus, they should matter to us as well.